Bible, that uh, song is actually taken right out of the Old Testament of the Bible, and it was a pronouncement of a blessing. It's obviously strong and powerful. Like, I can't get through that song without getting emotional, sorry. It's just, it's that good. I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible with you this morning to go to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 9. Maybe you have it electronically or you have a hard copy with you. Certainly the verses will be on the screen so you can follow along that way. I'd love to pray with you in just a minute, but I want to help you understand where we're going with this and also how it relates to things going on in our world, both locally and nationally and internationally today. And I think Joshua chapter 9 is a good lens for which you to, can look through the, the issues going on. We're in a study called E2E, Eternity to Eternity. And we started in the book of Genesis about two years ago. We're going to make our way to the book of Revelation. And we find ourselves in the book of Joshua this morning. And the reason for doing the E2E study is to help us develop a biblical worldview. Obviously, all the things going on in the world are not happening just by accident or by circumstance or by chance, but God said there's actually a plan. There's things that are going on that He's fully aware of as a sovereign God. And so we want to be able to look at things through the lens of what God is doing, and that's a biblical worldview. This morning, specifically, we're going to focus on spiritual warfare. What does that look like, both big warfare and little warfare? What does it look like in your life, both on an internal issue and an external issue, things coming against you every week? Uh, I never want to force an interpretation of Joshua chapter 9. Perhaps you've never looked at this particular chapter this way that I'm going to show you this morning, but clearly there's spiritual warfare going on in the midst of this story. Before we get there, though, I want to give you two anchor verses that you're going to carry with you through this episode that you're going to watch unfold. Let me show you the first one. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Second one, 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there's issues that God's raising here, that there's a temptation that you and I have to lean in our own wisdom, lean into our own feelings, to trust our own intuitions as opposed to trusting Him. And He comes right out and says, straight out, trust me. Lean into my understanding, and I'll make your path straight. But also be aware there's false teachers, there's deceivers, there's those who look to undo you or annihilate you. Be very aware that's going on in our world, and the Scriptures are very plain about that. So when you find the writers of the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, calling out spiritual warfare, they're not doing it by accident because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, this deception issue, it's one of the four major indicators of the last days. Now, as you can imagine, with war breaking out in Israel, I've received questions this week. Are these the last days? And that same question surfaced during the times of what happened in the Ukraine two years ago because whenever there's global unrest we're put on high alert, especially when it involves the Middle East, and people want to know, what's going on? Is this the end times? Well, part of your perspective on what's going on and what Jesus told us to be aware of is found in what's going on in Joshua chapter 9. 
So before we get to any of that, I'm going to take a moment and pray with you, especially about what has happened in Israel and about how this passage applies to both us and what's going on on a global scene. Would you pray together with me? Father, I do thank you for every single soul that occupies a seat in this auditorium and every single soul who has joined the broadcast. Some who are driving across country right now and they can only listen audibly, but others sitting at home with a Bible in their lap and many others sitting here today. Father, in each case, we would ask that you would speak to us personally so we would understand how you want us to adjust our life according to your ways and what you show us understanding that you are preeminent. So we lay ourselves humbly before you and ask that you would teach us, you would guide us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Cause your word to come alive now, Father. We pray for this in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. This will especially help you if you're not familiar with the Bible. When you open up the Bible, the very first pages of the Bible describe in stunning language the gorgeous beauty of God's creation before the fall of man. And his first creation, which is incredibly gorgeous, a place you would want to live, a place that is so lush you would just want to stay there and say, don't ever remove me from this place. That first creation, it's matched in splendor by the absolute purity of the highest of his creation. Humans, you, our ancient father and ancient mother, Adam and Eve, living in that perfect creation environment. But most importantly, they were created to walk with God because there's no sin in their life at this time. They haven't fallen. And so they can walk with God and they are an exact match for the perfect environment that they live in. So you have perfect creation and perfect creation of humans, perfect eyes, perfect skin, perfect teeth, perfect muscle structure, perfect intellect, perfect mental health, nothing lacking in them, and they can walk with God in a perfect environment. And then when you go to the end of the Bible and you open up the very last pages of the book of Revelation, you find that God creates a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, and it's stunning as well. But in between, in between those first pages and the very last pages, you find war. The pages are filled with it from opening to closing. It depicts a war that's fought on a cosmic scale. And this war is playing out right now in the midst of your life, in the midst of what you went through last week and what you will go through next week, and the Bible calls it spiritual warfare. Now, to be sure, the outcome of this war is never in doubt because of Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15, God made it very, very clear, Satan, your doom is sure. And that's why Martin Luther wrote what he did, lo, his doom is sure because there is an end for him. Because of the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ bought, the battle is already won. However, just like a wounded predator, Satan continues attacking and he will continue to attack until the day that he's thrown into the lake of fire. Because he is defeated but not yet finally destroyed, 
There continues to be in your life what's known as spiritual warfare, what we would call secondary battles. The major battle has already been won, but the forces of evil are coming against you. Scripture warns us in this way, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that's true both on a major scale and on a minor scale. Not every spiritual warfare battle that you encounter will be as big as Satan showing up and tempting Adam and Eve. Sometimes they take place in very little ways, very subtle ways. And then you find yourself wondering, how in the world did I get to this place? Well, one such example of spiritual warfare is found in Joshua chapter 9, and I'm going to take you there right now. Chapter 9, verse 1. Pay very close attention to that very first word, now. And it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and on all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Very careful attention to that first word, your Bible might begin with the word and. Either way, and or now, you might want to circle that. Because what it's doing is it's forcing your attention to pay very close attention to what in the world happened before. Because it's a continuation. I mentioned to you last week that verses and chapter divisions were added by modern translators. They weren't in the original text. So when you come to chapter 9, you feel like you should be beginning a new story, but actually it's a follow to what happened in chapter 8, and we want to keep it in context when it says now or the word and, because the force of the connection is really powerful, and what you uncover is the bigger picture that it's pointing to. It's showing you what's going on behind the scenes. Joshua contains much more than mere history. It reveals spiritual warfare that's going on all around us. Let me show you verse 1. Look at it again. Now it came about when all the kings heard of it. Heard of what? Heard of what God had done back in chapter 8 and chapter 7 and chapter 6. All the Hivites, all the Jebusites, all the Canaanites, all those vile, wicked empires that you've been learning about, they heard about what God is doing, and He did it so powerfully, it's so great, it captures the attention of all the military strategists and all of the political leaders, and they want to convene a forum so that they can strategize how to bring an attack and fight back. So verse 2 says, they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight. So among the ancient peoples who live west of the Jordan River, remember you learned that Israel has crossed the Jordan River. They're making their way west into the Promised Land. And among the people who are of the ancient world who live west of the Jordan River who do not belong to God, they've got two reactions to what they find out is going on. And one is a military reaction among these political leaders. And they are determined that they're going to band together to withstand the advance of Israel. So you find six different groups that are mentioned here, and they're joined as this unified force. Even though they may not have regionally gotten along before, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they want to come together to fight together with one purpose in mind. They want to destroy Israel. 
But then we're introduced to another group of adversaries in verses 3 and 4. And they're the inhabitants of a town called Gibeon, which is actually a pretty big city. And we're told in verse 4 that they acted craftily. Now, that doesn't mean they were frequent flyer customers at Hobby Lobby. They acted craftily or shrewdly, as you're going to see in verse 4. They were very methodical about what they went to do, and we find this statement in verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. Now, if you read Joshua chapter 10, you're going to find out these guys are actually from what's compared to as a royal city. And we're told that all the warriors of that city are mighty men. They're very tall. They're very powerful in military. And they're really smart, which gives you an indication of how overwhelmingly powerful God's actions have been because even though they're mighty and even though they're very intelligent, they're actually afraid of Israel because God has been so powerful on Israel's behalf. And so they come up with a strategy in order to deceive Israel into a non-aggression treaty. You might want to call it a ceasefire. That's what their strategy will be. And so the plan is really simple. They want to send diplomats who are pretending to be from a distant land, and they're going to trick Israel into a peace covenant. So they go in this really elaborate disguise, and they put on all this tattered clothing like sackcloth, making it look like they're really poor, and they've worn out their clothes because they've traveled so far, and they put on these shoes that look like they're completely worn out, and then their wineskins are worn out, and they've re-sewn them to make them look really, really old, but in reality, their home is only 19 miles away. They're only 19 miles away from where Israel is camping at Gilgal, which is about six miles away from Jerusalem. So check what's going on. In the exact same way that the kings had come together of these foreign lands and they heard about the amazing victories of God, so had the Gibeonites. They heard about it as well and it represents four different cities. So you've got two entities, two entities who are both very well informed and they both have wicked objectives. And one group wants to obliterate Israel and the other one wants to deceive Israel. And very importantly, each group is very well aware of what the one true God is actually doing and that He's on the move. So they're completely unlike Rahab, though. Rahab, we saw in Jericho, was very aware of what God was doing, and she wanted to join God in His work. These individuals want to rebel against God and defy Him in any way that they can. So let's follow the flow and see how this plays out. Verse 6, they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. So the Gibeonites lie right to their face. They come up with this fabrication and they claim that they've come from this distant country. Now mind you, Israel is allowed to make treaties or covenants with people who are from far away countries but they're forbidden from making covenants with individuals who write in, are right in the promised land. God said, you can't do that 
because there's a reason. Let me take you all the way back to the book of Exodus. You might remember when we were in chapter 34. This is what God said to them in verse 11. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Pay close attention, church, because this applies to you. Verse 12, watch yourself. This is God's warning to his people. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going or it will become a snare in your midst. And God tells them this because evil is real. Evil is real and you don't invite evil into your home. So God says, watch yourself. There's a Hebrew word that's in your notes this morning. You see it going up on the screen. It's the word shamar. And notice it's not just talking about building a nice piece of landscaping. It's talking about building a hedge, not for the purpose of being attractive, but a thorny hedge. Why would you put up thorns? To keep things out. So God is saying, shamar, watch yourself very, very carefully. You've got to guard and you've got to protect. Take heed. Watch what's coming toward you because there are forces that will not only try to corrupt you because they belong to Satan, but also there are really people in this world who will kill babies. And you've seen it put on the news this last week. They hate other people to the degree they will kill babies. And so God is really aware. He says, if they're given opportunity, they're going to do everything in their power to turn you from God or they're going to try and annihilate you. So God gives very clear and very precise instructions. A couple weeks ago, we saw some of his instructions when we were looking at the Battle of Jericho. Part of his instructions are really hard to read because they're so harsh. But he says it this way in Deuteronomy 20. You shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? Why, God? Verse 18, so that you do not, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things. We've talked about some of those things over the last couple weeks. Most of them are not fit to describe on a Sunday morning, especially with children in the auditorium. But mind you this, if you get time to look it up yourself, look up these tribes that I've mentioned and what their lifestyle was like, and you will find they were a vile people, individuals whom you would not want to hang out with. And God said, if you hang out with them, they're going to corrupt you. They're going to bring destruction into your life because they're going to teach you to do their detestable things. However, backing up to Israel now, Israel could make terms of covenant with nations outside of the promised land. In Joshua chapter 9, we find that these Gibeonites were not actually lying. They actually were saying they were from another country, but nothing that Israel had ever been exposed to before. If they had actually been from a far country outside the promised land, they could enter into a covenant with them. It would absolutely be permissible. Here's the remarkable thing to me. They knew this. They knew the rules that God had given them. The Gibeonites approached the Israelites with this understanding. They know exactly what God's command was. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 7. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, it's just another name for the people from Gibeon, perhaps you are living within our land. 
how then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard the report of Him and all that He did in Egypt, and all that He did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and to the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth." So Joshua is smart enough that he suspects a con. He thinks something's up. So he surfaces the possibility, wait. You guys could actually be living within our borders. How do we know that you are not? You might actually live within our midst. What's very telling is how they convince them that they're actually telling the truth, even though they're not. So they start off by stating that they fear the one true God. They start off by saying very familiar language and they actually use the covenant name of Yahweh and they do it with flattery. Look at this verse the way it's stated, because of the fame of the Lord. Church, don't for a moment think that the enemies of God won't hesitate to present themselves as those who honor God because they absolutely will. Paul wrote about this very thing in relation to the church. He said, you be very careful about individuals who come into the church and make sure that they're actually talking and speaking the truth. Look with me on the screen at this, 2 Corinthians 11. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. James went on to say, Individuals like that, they're no different than the demons because the demons believe in God. Look with me at James, James chapter 2. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder. So if Satan knows the way to get inside and the demons know the way to get inside, you can be very sure that the sons of darkness know full well how to get inside. Jesus in Luke chapter 18 said, know for sure that the sons of darkness are much more shrewd than the sons of light. Be very careful in paying attention to what Jesus said. Be very cautious about what He said. God says that the sons of darkness who mean things for evil tend to stay up until two in the morning, strategizing ways to get on the inside because the sons of darkness are much more shrewd than the sons of light, and they come up with better strategies. So if the demons know and Satan knows, you can be sure the sons of darkness knows, but one of the hardest deceptions to detect is when truth is woven together with lies. So these individuals show up and they say, it's the fame of Yahweh that brought us in. Well, that's a lie. That's not actually what brought them in. And then they begin using a very distinctive phraseology that is unique to the Torah and primarily only Jewish people would know this phrase, the word Hashem. And the word Hashem is very unique to the Jewish people, especially at this period of time. Very unique to the people who belong to God. So you see this word Hashem on the screen? 
It's a, a very clever way of not saying the name of God because to pronounce the name of God out loud, Yahweh, was forbidden. And so they would shrink it down to initials and just put Y-H-W-H, trying not to say the name of God, but even that was forbidden. And so on one day a year, on the day of Yom Kippur, the high priest could pronounce the name of God one time for everybody to say Yahweh out loud, and then everybody would cover their mouth because the name of God was unpronounceable. So to be very clever about not pronouncing His name, they came up with the phrase, Hashem, the name, the name, the fame of that one. That's the one that they're saying right here. That one brought us in. To, to Jews, Hashem means something incredibly significant. So follow this. These individuals from Gibeon are so shrewd. They're so dialed into Jewish culture. They're so well-trained to infiltrate. They're saying, we're coming here because of the renown of this authority of this great God. And they use God language to trick these individuals by playing on words by saying, it's the Hashem of Yahweh. So they're speaking church talk. They're speaking church language, which means they did their homework because the sons of darkness are much more shrewd than the sons of light. And they're being very careful about when to use the words and where to use the words and what are the right words. They're saying, we've heard about what God did in Egypt. Well, that's true. Everybody heard about that. They're saying, we heard about the destruction that took place of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan. Well, that's true. Everybody had heard about that. But spiritual deception comes in multiple forms, so they're very, very cunning in their explanation. Sometimes deception takes place in what people don't say. And you notice that they mentioned what God did in Egypt, and they mentioned what God did on the other side of the Jordan but they never mention what God did in Jericho or what God did in Ai. Why? Because they're from a far country. And people from a far country couldn't possibly have heard about Jericho because it had just happened. And they couldn't have heard possibly about Ai because it just happened last week. And they've been traveling, so they're really careful to leave that out. And if anybody had mentioned Jericho's fall, they'd have to respond with, oh, really? We didn't know about that. So they did hear about Egypt, and they did hear about the Amorites, but spiritual deception comes in multiple forms, and then they keep going to really pull off this shrewd move, verse 11. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet with them, and say to them, we are your servants, now then make a covenant with us. This, our bread, was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and has become, the word actually there is moldy, it has become crumbled. These wineskins which we, we filled were new, and behold, they are torn. And these are clothes, our sandals are worn out because of our very long journey. These guys should get an Academy Award. Really good acting. We've got such raggedy clothes. Can't you tell we've come from a long distance? Our shoes are all patched. All the time lying to them. And as is the case with all liars, they become very good at mixing the truth and telling partial truth along with the lies. 
the elders did tell them to take provisions. And they did hear legitimate reports about what God did, but they weave the lies together with the truth. So verse 14 becomes very sad. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions, means they examined their provisions, and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. So because they're suspicious, they want to open up their backpacks, and they do an on-site inspection. Let's see if this is true. So they open up the backpacks and they find, yeah, there's really moldy bread in here. And everything is visually as they had said. However, the leaders of Israel make an incredibly tragic mistake. They trust their senses and they do not seek the counsel of the Lord. We are so prone to that, church. We are so prone to trust our feelings and our emotions as opposed to checking God's Word. And I want to press this element for you because I totally identify with this. As fallen creatures, our tendency is to not lean into God, but to lean into our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge ourselves, to trust our instincts, to trust our feelings, which tells me that seeking God is actually a spiritual discipline. You want to check where you're at in maturity level in your walk with Christ? Check and see how you're doing with leaning into God's understanding. It's one of the measures of maturity in Christ. Look at the verse again. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight, which is a massive warning to us because God's saying, hey, I want to be consulted. I want you to check in with me. And if we ignore Him, we do it at our own risk. So naturally, naturally, I mean because we're fallen people, we are really remiss in acknowledging God in all our ways. That's why God tells us to do it, because we don't. It's this very point that Israel messed up on. They've opened themselves up to the schemes of Satan. In other words, they're walking by sight and not by faith, and they're relying on their senses. And when you trust your feelings, your feelings will betray you. And that's exactly where they find themselves. I want you to note what's unfolded so far, thinking all the way back to verse 1. In verse 1, we found this first group that's intent on using force, military strength against Israel. The other group comes against them under the pretense of wanting to be friends. So two principal methods are used by the arch enemy of God, acting from without and acting from within. That's why the Bible describes Satan both as an angel of light and as a dragon of darkness. From one, he comes outside like a roaring lion, and the Scriptures describe him that way. And what does a lion look to do? A lion seeks to terrorize you, but the one that's cunning, that acts from within like a cunning serpent, that one moves very slowly and very carefully. Let me ask you a question. Which one of the two is more dangerous? I'd argue the one that comes from within. The one that moves so slowly and so stealthily with such subtle deception 
that they work their way in without you even knowing that they're there and without recognition, that's when they strike with deadly venom. So let's keep perspective here this morning. How in the world does this relate to where we're at in our world? Well, let's just think about what happened in AI that you learned about last week. We learned that because of the victory at Jericho, because of what God had done militarily, they thought that they were invincible and therefore they took off after AI without consulting God because they could do it on their own. Like, we're bulletproof. We can do whatever we need to do and that's when they got defeated. And they lost sight of the fact that Jericho fell not because of military brilliance and not because they had the newest weapons, but because of the power of Jehovah God. And that's what they were not reminding themselves of. Let me tell you how this does relate to our day. Yesterday in discovery class, we do a discovery class here for people that want to become members of New Hope. And yesterday there's 30 or 40 people in the class and uh, different teachers, different elders took place in teaching where we're at and what's going on with our constitution. And my turn came around noon and I was talking about the history of the church. And one individual asked this question. He said, hey, can I ask a personal question? To which I timidly said, okay, because you never know what's going to come with a personal question. And his question was this, how do you keep from becoming prideful? Good question. I appreciate when someone is that honest because I had just mentioned that New Hope has gone from this place of being 35 people in 2007 to almost 2,000 people today. And his question was really good. How do you, Mark, keep from becoming prideful in these situations? My first response was, I have a wife. (laughs) And I mean that in the kindest way. And I, I say it for this reason. Because our family keeps us in check, right, church? Our family knows us, they live with us, and they, they keep us balanced. But that's a secondary issue to this bigger issue. The reality is God's the master, we're the servant. Say amen if you agree with that. Okay, he's the master, we're the servant. Where any place in the world do you find the servant going to the master and saying, here's what I'm going to do today. And by the way, I want you to do this. That never happens. The servant goes to the master and says to the master, what do you want me to do? The master-servant relationship is well described in the Bible. He's the master, we're the servant. God invited us into this work to join him in what he's doing, not the other way around. So keeping that perspective is really healthy and it keeps you from becoming prideful And that's the way I answered that individual's question. Well, in Israel's case, when you look back at this, you'd think after they made that mistake at AI, thinking we can go do it on our own, we've got this, that if they ever had another failure, they'd learn and not do it from the exact same cause. Certainly their eyes must be opened by this point. But human nature is very slow to learn. We just continue to be full of ourselves. And if you don't think you have a big ego, you do. We all do. Guys, I'll speak specifically to you because I are one. Think back to the days before we had phones available with maps on them. No guy ever wanted to stop when they're lost and ask for directions. 
No guy wanted to go before his family and go to some gas station and say, I'm lost, man. I can't figure out how to get there. Can you help me? Why? Because that takes humility. You have to lower yourself and say, I'm lost. Guys typically don't like to go to God and say, I'm lost. I can't figure this out. I'm not sure what to do next. Because the reverse is we're full of ourselves, and we want to think this way. I'm smart enough. I can figure my way out of this. Because it takes humility to ask God for a direction. So very sadly comes verse 15. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. So the leaders bind themselves in a covenant fashion to these Gibeonites. Even though God had given explicit directions to Joshua, you've got to come to me first, consult me. In all your ways, acknowledge me. And they make a classic error. They're making a God-sized decision based purely on feelings and intuition. See, the issue is not that someone's coming to deceive them. People come to deceive you all the time. The issue is that they didn't consult God, and they didn't look for His counsel. So verse 16, it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Chef, uh, I can't even pronounce those, go to 18. The sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. We don't know how, but three days later, they find out, you guys are actually in our backyard. They find out that the envoys are fakes. In reality, they're Hivites. And so they immediately march to Gibeon and say, what's up? Why did you deceive us? But now they're trapped because oath-taking is very serious in God's world. God says, don't enter into vows lightly. Don't take oaths lightly. These are very serious issues. But because this oath is so sacred, this treaty, treaty that's made with the Gibeonites has made them bulletproof. Now, Israel can't touch them. It cannot be undone. And one immediate result is it causes the entire nation to grumble against the leaders, verse 19. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation... This is their explanation. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, so that the wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. So these guys get brownie points in my book because contrary to most national leaders trying to explain away their mistake, they own it. And they say, yep, we screwed up. We messed up and we entered into a covenant with them, and we can't touch them. We're powerless. And many years later, the Gibeonites became such a thorn in the flesh to Israel, they had to deal with them all the way until 70 A.D. because they can't touch them. And when they did touch them, when King Saul actually killed some Gibeonites, David had to clean up his mess because God brought famine for three years on all of Israel because of what Saul had done. Even if this had been negotiated under false pretense, Israel will incur God's wrath if they touch the Hivites. Verse 22, 
Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you are living within our land? Now, therefore, you are cursed. You shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And Jacob is actually projecting their future. Break down with me. Look at that verse closely. Drawers of water of my house for my God. The house of God hasn't even been built yet. It won't be built for hundreds of years. He's saying, here's what's going to happen to your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. You're going to be the ones who draw water and bring it constantly for the house of my God, and you're going to make firewood for us because you have deceived us, but that's the most they could do to them. And this sentence is going to be carried out into perpetuity until the Romans show up in 70 AD. And here's how it comes to an end. Verse 24. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land. How in the world do these people from Gibeon even know about Moses? How do they know about the commands of God? How are they that dialed in? Because the enemy is prepared and calculated and very intentional, and Jesus was spot on, as he always is, Luke 16, 8. The sons of darkness are much more shrewd than the sons of light. Which reminds you and I this morning, the unbelieving world is not ignorant of the mighty works of God. They just don't like them. So that they are aware actually renders their unbelief all the more inexcusable. It's precisely because of the mighty works of God that these enemy forces are assembled. And this coming together of all of these kings and their joint agreement to bring military forces in attack is recognized as the enemy's action because they're learning that God's on the move. That's when you're most vulnerable. When God's on the move and doing something, that's when the enemy is moving against you. And in this case, instead of choosing like Rahab did, they choose rebellion to go against God. The very essence of humanity's fallenness, our depravity, is that we would revolt, that we would revolt against God and refuse to be in subjection to Him. Because sin is not only following your own desire, it's also rebelling against your Maker. So there's so many present-day analogies that we could draw this to so familiar to us, I just want to wrap it up with this one. Know this, this timing of them coming to them is not by accident. If you go back later today and read Joshua chapter 9, you're going to find that these people had just agreed with God all the days of our life, we're going to follow you. They're in a spiritual high, and that's when the enemy came, and they used God language to deceive God's people. The outstanding lesson for us today is this, the vital aspect, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is to be very aware spiritual warfare is real. It does exist. So your job is to be on, on the alert, to be aware of the work of Satan, but equally you have to be diligently on guard about your own internal issues of pride and how we respond to things that come our way internally. So it comes from without and it comes from within. And I do find the within to be much more dangerous because we think we already know what we're supposed to do without giving God any consideration whatsoever. 
So scripture has to warn us this way, 1 John 4, this is where we started. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So these passages that you've seen this morning, these are just samples of many warnings in the Bible in which the Bible says your job is to test the message and the messenger. So you should be checking me every week to make sure that what I'm saying is biblically accurate, that what is actually being expounded upon is truly the Word of God. It's true in every single situation. But most importantly, when someone is claiming to speak for God, so how do we test that? We test it by comparing with what's being taught to what the Word of God actually says, because the Bible alone is the Word of God. Hope you agree with that. I heard like 10 people say amen. amen. I'll give you another shot. The Bible alone is the Word of God. Amen. I know we all agree on that. So we have to check what's being communicated against the Word of God. Is it actually in line with God's Word? So Scripture commends you this way. Be diligent to present yourself as workers that don't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of God, meaning you need to know God's Word in order to understand if you're being deceived. I want to pray with us that we would understand God better in that way by growing in the knowledge of God's Word. Would you join me in that? Father, I pray for your blessing upon these individuals. They have spent time in your word this morning trying to know you better. And I pray that you would return that with a blessing that we would walk more confidently before you and before the world that's watching. And Lord God, we have so many individual friends who don't know you and we want to represent you well to them. So we pray that you would allow us to model the love of Christ but also the truth of Christ at the same time. We continue to ask that you would favor us with boldness, with confidence, with a capacity to represent you well in this watching world. And we ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't met yet, I'll be down here in the front after the service. I'd love to meet you. And there's a team of individuals that'll be over here as well that you can talk with. If you need somebody to pray for you this morning, head over to the prayer room. Have a great week, New Home.